and welcome to the Women of Faith podcast hosted by Faith Church in Indianapolis. I'm Brenda Soderstrom, and I'm so excited to share with you what God has been teaching me about the abundant life. Welcome to the introductory session to Abundance, Life to the Full. This study came about as I was meditating on John 10, specifically from the second half of verse 10. In the NIV, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The NASB, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. King James, I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. The New Living Translation, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. The Christian Standard Bible, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. And the message, I came so they can have a real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. The word I'm drawn to from this verse is full, abundant. It's a Greek word, perisos. It's found 10 times in the New Testament and translated as more than, beyond measure, more vehemently, more abundantly, exceedingly, exceedingly abundantly. What an incredible word. In your homework, I asked you to define abundance. Whenever I seek a definition in, for a biblical term, I look in various places. I look in a regular dictionary and a thesaurus. I look in the Bible dictionary. I go to the original Greek or Hebrew for the word, and I also look how scholars and preachers have defined it. Dictionary.com defines abundant as extremely plentiful or overly sufficient quantity or supply, overflowing fullness. BibleStudyTools.com is one of my favorite websites for an interlinear Bible. It also has links to the New Testament Greek lexicon, which is based on several respected Bible dictionaries. The New Testament Greek lexicon defines abundant as exceeding some measure or need, over and above, more than is necessary, exceeding abundantly. Something further, more, much more than all, superior, extraordinary. I love finding these excessive words in scripture. There's something about them that entices me to dig deeper and slow down and meditate on them. Three of my favorite excessive words are overflow, lavish, and immeasurably more. Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It runs over. It's completely saturated. Psalm 119, 171, may my lips overflow with praise. May they pour out, bubble up, flow, gush forth. Proverbs 3, 10, then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. They'll break through, burst, breach. Ephesians 1, 7-8 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He lavished, abound, exceeding a fixed measure, abundant. And Ephesians three twenty. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, immeasurably more over and beyond what we could ask or imagine. God loves to be a God of excess. I also wanted to share a little about the word for life in this verse. There are three words translated life in the New Testament. Bios, which is where we get the word biology, meaning a physical body. Sufe, where we get the word psychology. It means the soul as an essence, which differs from the body and is not dissolved by death. 
It's the vital force that animates the body. And in this case, the word is zoe. It's where we get the word zoology. It means the absolute fullness of life, both essential and ethical. And my favorite definition, it's life, real and genuine, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God, blessed, and after the resurrection to be consummated by a more perfect body that lasts forever. Zoe implies an eternal, God-imparted life. Wow. Take that definition, add overflowing fullness exceedingly abundantly to it. Wow. Just wow. Matthew Henry's commentary states not just that Jesus came that we might have life, but that we might have it more abundantly, using the comparative form. So we might have a life that is more abundant than that which was lost and forfeited because of our sin. We might have a life that is more abundant than that which was promised by the law of Moses. And we might have a life that is more abundant than whatever we could expect or ask or imagine or think of. Christ came to give life in something more, something better, a life of abundance. And we're going to spend the next month looking at what this life could and should look like. Just a little fun fact, as I was digging into this passage, I learned of an interesting difference between the Gospel of John and the Synoptic Gospels. John doesn't record Jesus telling narrative parables like the first three Gospels. However, biblical scholars note that there are six abbreviated allegories or symbolic illustrations in John that are somewhat similar to parables. John refers to them as figures of speech. John 10 is one of these so-called non-parable parables. It's a familiar story where Jesus calls himself both the gate and the good shepherd. It's hard to know how much background info to include, but I think it's necessary to see John 10 in light of John 9, where Jesus heals a blind man on the Sabbath. In typical fashion, the Pharisees, who should have been the faithful shepherds over God's flock, are upset with this and give the newly sighted man and his parents a hard time. Instead of rejoicing in the wonderful miracle the Pharisees were more concerned with Jesus breaking their legalistic Sabbath rules. Jesus essentially responds to them that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. This background helps explain chapter 10, where Jesus has to explain his story because his audience doesn't understand it. And he draws a sharp contrast between them, the false shepherds, the thieves, the robbers, and himself as the true shepherd. In your homework, I asked you to study Ezekiel 34 and John 10, 1 to 18. These passages serve as a shepherd's list of do's and don'ts. So what do we learn from these passages? Going verse by verse through Ezekiel 34, we see the appointed shepherds were not taking care of God's flock. The shepherds made sure to take care of themselves, but ignored the needs of the flock. The shepherds ruled harshly and didn't care for the weak, the sick, the injured, and the lost. The sheep were scattered and vulnerable to attacks because they lacked a good shepherd. No one searched for the scattered sheep. No one cared. God's sheep had been scattered, plundered, and not cared for. Therefore, God himself will rescue his sheep and hold these bad shepherds accountable for their actions and remove them from their role as shepherds. God himself will search for his sheep and look after them. God himself will rescue and look after his sheep. God himself will gather his scattered sheep together and pasture them in their own land. God himself will tend his sheep in good, rich pastures. God himself will tend his sheep and give them rest. God himself will search for lost sheep, bring back strays, bind up the injured, strengthen the weak, 
and shepherd the flock with justice. And going verse by verse through John 10, we see that thieves and robbers don't enter by the gate, but the true shepherd enters by the gate. The shepherd knows the sheep by name, and he leads them. The sheep follow the shepherd, and they know his voice. The sheep do not follow a stranger. Jesus is the gate for the sheep. There were many thieves and robbers who came before Jesus, but the sheep didn't listen to them. Jesus is the gateway of salvation. The thief is selfish and seeks to destroy, but Jesus gives abundant life. Jesus is the good shepherd and gives his life for the sheep. The hired hands don't care about the sheep, but they run when they see danger. They don't really care for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd and knows his sheep, who also know him. This knowledge is intimate and deep. Jesus had plans to bring other sheep into the fold. The Father loves Jesus because he lays down his life for the sheep, and Jesus lays his life down voluntarily. Do you see it? In John 10, Jesus is declaring himself the fulfillment of this prophecy from Ezekiel 34. Because the shepherds of Israel weren't fulfilling their role, God himself came down to earth to do it. There is so much in John 10, more than we can truly digest in our time this morning, but I wanted to touch upon some of the key ideas from this passage. First, Jesus clearly explains the job of the shepherd and how he fulfills this for his flock. Second, Jesus claims to be both the good shepherd and the gate. Third, Jesus is both rebuking the Pharisees and warning his followers not to follow these false teachers, these thieves, these robbers. And fourth, Jesus explains why he has come, so that they may have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. So first, Jesus clearly explains the role of the shepherd and how he fulfills this for his flock. Hopefully you had a very full chart from your homework and small group time of the responsibilities of the shepherd and how God cares for you. The John 10 passage focuses on the relationship the shepherd has with his sheep, whereas the Ezekiel 34 passage lists many practical ways that a shepherd cares for his flock, which translate remarkably well to how God cares for us. Just to touch on a few of these. Just as a shepherd strengthens the weak sheep, in Isaiah 41.10, God promises he will strengthen, help, and uphold us. Our weakness isn't a liability to God. Romans 8.26 assures us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And 2 Corinthians 12.9 and 10 tells us that God's grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in weakness, for when we are weak, we are made strong in him. A shepherd heals the sick and binds up the injured. God heals us physically, emotionally, spiritually, sometimes supernaturally, other times through the provision of doctors and medicine. In Exodus 15, 26, God declares, I am the Lord who heals you. And Hosea 6, 1 tells how God will heal us and bind up our wounds. A shepherd searches for his lost sheep and brings back strays. If we want to find encouragement in how God pursues us and goes after the lost, look no further than Luke 15 and the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Each parable ends with great rejoicing. Our God cares deeply for the lost, and Jesus' words in Luke 19.10 couldn't be more succinct. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. A shepherd rescues his sheep from danger. 
God rescues us from ourselves, from sin, from Satan's lies, from eternal punishment, etc., etc., etc. Galatians 1.4 says he rescues us from the present evil age. Colossians 1.14, he rescues us from the dominion of darkness. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he rescues us from the coming wrath. There is no shortage of rescue in scripture. A shepherd provides food and rest for his sheep. Isaiah 58.11 tells us that the Lord will guide us always and satisfy our needs. And in one of the most loved passages in scripture, Matthew 11, 28 to 29, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Like a shepherd, God knows we need rest, and he graciously provides it for us when we come to him. A shepherd serves as the door of protection within the pen and leads his sheep out of the pen into the world. Another familiar psalm, Psalm 32, 7, declares, You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. What an excellent example of how God shepherds us. In Deuteronomy 31, 8, the Lord himself assures us that he goes before us and he will be with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. A shepherd calls his sheep by name because he intimately knows his sheep. During Jesus' three years of ministry, we have so many one-on-one -on -one examples of Jesus caring intimately for the individual. Who can forget Zacchaeus, whom Jesus calls out by name in Luke 19.5? We are never just a number to Jesus. Matthew 10.30 tells us that he knows us so personally that even the hairs of our head are numbered. And Psalm 139, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's room. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Yes, God knows you by name and cares intimately about you. And finally, our good shepherd laid down his life to save us. Voluntarily, he laid it down. Romans 5, 6-9 tells us, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? It's no wonder that Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5-7 that we can cast all our anxiety on him. It's because of how intimately and deeply he cares for us, just like a loving shepherd. Second, Jesus claims to be not only the good shepherd, 
but also the gate. We learned a lot from the Ezekiel 34 passage about what a good shepherd is and how he cares for his sheep. To understand that Jesus is the gate, we need to understand more about cultural shepherding. Culturally, the fold of the sheep was a walled enclosure open to the sky with only one entrance. It was usually made of rocks with thorns on top of the rocks. Shepherds would lead their flock out of the sheepfold to the hillsides where they would graze in the morning. Then in the afternoon, the shepherd would provide a temporary shelter in the field built of shrubs where the sheep could rest. This corral-type structure provided a place for the sheep to lie down, protected from wild beasts. The shepherd himself would lay across the opening so that the sheep couldn't depart without crossing over him. The sheep would enter and leave through the doorway. Thus, the doorway represented both a passageway to safety and protection from enemy threats when they entered into it, as well as a path to pasture and freedom when they were led back out. John Piper says, The human heart wants more than safety or to be saved. It wants protection and life, and abundant life, and overflowing life, not just to survive, but to thrive. Thus, the good shepherd leads the sheep both into the pen as well as back out into the world to pasture. And I think it's also key to recognize that ideally, Jesus leads us back out into the world. We're not running ahead of him, but rather following him. Third, Jesus is both rebuking the Pharisees and warning his followers not to follow these false teachers, these thieves, these robbers. False teachers. This could be a topic in and of itself. The scriptures, both Old and New Testament, are full of warnings against false prophets and teachers. We really do need to be on our guard. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. 1 John 4, 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And Matthew 7, 15, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And while we don't have time to fully delve into this, I wanted to say just a few things about it because it will impact us going forward. Believing the lies of Satan is a major obstacle to living the abundant life that Jesus secured for us. That's why Jesus was so direct in his ministry to call out these false teachers. I wish we had time to read and dig into Matthew 23 as a whole and study the list of woes. But for now, allow me to summarize what Jesus said to look out for. In his article, How Jesus Called Out False Teachers and Deadly Doctrine, author Tim Challies states, Jesus warns us to look out for their doctrinal error. These religious authorities were experts at masking truth as error. Jesus confronted their error by telling the crowd in Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In the name of God, these leaders advocated a works-based system of righteousness that ignored and denied God's free grace. They sought to appear religious, but they violated the spirit of the law while maintaining the letter of it. Jesus said to look out for their unrighteous actions. The religious authorities taught error as truth, and in consequence, they acted like hypocrites. Jesus warned the crowd of the doctrinal error of these leaders. 
He told of their ungodly actions in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And again, in verses 25 and 26, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Jesus said to recognize their true identity. Having called out their unrighteousness, he appropriately described and labeled the false teachers. In Matthew 23 alone, Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites six times. Besides that, he calls them blind guides, blind fools, blind men, whitewashed tombs, sons of those who murdered the prophets, serpents, and brood of vipers. Do you get the point? Does Jesus calling out their true identity not make you see how dangerous they truly are? And finally, Jesus called out their coming judgment. Jesus wanted his listeners to know the full gravity of their deadly doctrine. So six times he repeated this word, woe. This is a word of divine judgment that warns of a final, miserable ending. In verse 32, he says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus wasn't shy about their coming judgment. Jesus contrasts the true shepherd with many other people in John 10. The thief, the robber, the stranger, the hired hand. Why don't we want to follow these people? Well, to steal a line from the musical Hamilton, they have not our interests at heart. In John 10.10, Jesus says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Hopefully you had a challenging small group discussion about the many ways that the thief steals, kills, and destroys in our lives and in our world today. How he blinds us to the purpose of our existence and wreaks havoc in our lives. How he steals time away from prayer and meditation and makes us just too busy. How he steals time from families with technology demanding our attention. How he steals ambitions, goals, and aspirations to do God's will. How he kills through abortion, through drug abuse, disease, wars, genocides. How he destroys relationships because of competition and greed, selfishness, selfishness, strife, murder, suicide. How he destroys us by enticing us to sin, by seeking pleasure. How he destroys by seeking to separate and alienate us from God and from each other. We need to remember, it's Satan who is behind all these false teachers. Revelation 12.9 tells us that Satan leads the whole world astray. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that Satan has blinded the mind of unbelievers. And 1 Peter 5.8 warns us to be alert and of sober mind. Our enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So while we can't take a lot of time digging into these warnings this spring, this is no indication that it's not extremely important. But I also don't want to raise an alarm where you think everyone is a false teacher. The end of John 10 verses 27 to 30 gives us great assurance from Jesus. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, 
No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Finally, Jesus explains why he has come, so that they may have life and have it to the full, abundantly. I think it's critical for us to understand how Jesus is the true shepherd in order to experience this abundant life. So much of what he provides for us correlates to how a shepherd cares for his flock. In the next couple of weeks, as we look into specific ways that our lives are full, keep in mind the context from this verse. Jesus is the good shepherd. It is his provision that is enabling us to experience this abundant life. Another of your homework questions had you research what Jesus said about why he came. Jesus came to give us an abundant life. He came to lay down his life as a ransom, to call sinners to repentance, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. He came to liberate the oppressed, to seek and save the lost. He came to do the will of God. He came to give us peace, to make our joy complete. He came so that all nations could put their hope in him. He came to give us life, and not just a good life, but an abundant life, overflowing, bursting forth, bubbling up, pouring out, abounding beyond what we could ask or imagine. That's what we're studying this spring. We only have three more weeks together this spring, and each week we will focus on a different way that God gives us a full life. I have chosen to focus on how life with Jesus is joyful and peaceful and hopeful. But there are so many other fulls. Hopefully between your homework and small group, you came up with a long list. Here are some of mine. Grateful, prayerful, dutiful, useful, helpful, thankful, beautiful, faithful, restful, powerful, thoughtful, meaningful, graceful, merciful, resourceful, successful, delightful, insightful, worshipful, fruitful, truthful, purposeful, flavorful, cheerful. Life with Jesus is full. Jesus came so that we might have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. My prayer for you all this spring is from Romans 15:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we look at the joyful life of abundance that Jesus has secured for us.